For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. The major theme we've been talking about here in Daniel is being a light in the midst of darkness, right? That Daniel and his buddies were captured by the Babylonians, by King Nebuchadnezzar, hauled off uh, into a culture that they didn't know, and, you know, they were going to brainwash them. They were going to try to turn them into Babylonians and then send them back as infiltrators into their own Jewish culture. And so it really raises this question, how do we bring God's love in a culture that's hostile to the Bible? Where, you know, as I think about my faith and my Christianity, and I'm living in a culture that, that is harshly critiquing what Jesus teaches, what the Bible teaches. What are the things where I can choose my battles? How should I choose my battles? Should I stand strong and what should I stand strong for? Or should I be flexible? And where can I be flexible? It's a very important, very difficult question to answer. In chapter 1, Daniel and his friends refuse to eat the king's food because there's a direct law for them. As, as Old Testament Jewish believers, there were dietary laws that God wanted them to follow, and eating the king's food would vi- violate those dietary laws. So they, they stick with the word of God. But they do it extremely respectfully and carefully and cautiously in a way that doesn't offend their captors, and everything works out. They agree to serve the king and to seek the welfare of the city. We saw how the prophet Jeremiah was telling the people that as they are hauled off into this captivity, that they should be a blessing to the Babylonians, while not consenting to change their beliefs. How can you be different? How can you even have a critique of the culture that you're in while being a blessing to that culture? It's kind of interesting to think about. Last week in chapter 2, we saw how they saved even the magicians from Nebuchadnezzar's wrath that Daniel was given insight by God to turn this madman, Nebuchadnezzar, who was going to wipe out all the, the Chaldeans, all the holy wise men of his culture, because he was fed up with their antics, their lies. There's something about Nebuchadnezzar where it seems like he is in search of something that's authentic, something that's spiritual, something that's real, but he's also a megalomaniac and a man of absolute power, and he can kill people who make him upset. And he does that on a regular basis. But God saves Daniel, and Daniel uses what God gives him to save the competition, the people that are teaching the false beliefs and trying to drive the king away from a true relationship with God. Daniel saves those people as well. Not to mention that God is beginning to do something very interesting where he is developing a personal relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. He's bringing these people into Nebuchadnezzar's life to answer his questions, to titillate him, that there is, there is something real to the spiritual realm and that God is a God who wants to answer his questions. And Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to experience that and experience the love of God in a way that he hadn't before. And so we get to chapter 3, and we find there's another great challenge right along these same lines. Chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width was 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, most of us don't know what a cubit is, 
right? 60 cubits and six, tall and six cubits wide would have been about 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, which is pretty good. I mean, think uh, the Lincoln Memorial, right? And I mean, ancient world too, right? So this was a big thing, and he's doing something that uh, is kind of interesting. We can speculate a little bit about where he's coming from. Why is this a gold statue if it's, if it's uh, 90 feet tall and uh, and nine feet wide, you know, it could be an obelisk or it could be a person. It could be a man. And when we remember what we learned about his dream in chapter two, it opens up a pretty interesting speculation. He had had this dream of this statue and the, he- this, the, the, the materials used in the statue represented different kingdoms. And Daniel explained that to us in chapter two. But the head of gold was Babylon. It was Nebuchadnezzar, Right? And the thing that God was trying to show Nebuchadnezzar was, your kingdom is great, it's the golden kingdom, but it will come to an end. Your reign will come to an end, and there will be a kingdom after you. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Very likely, he makes a gold statue and says, no, my reign is forever, right? And he sets it out in this plain, and you kind of get the picture of what he's shooting for. You know, this giant statue in the middle of this plain, this gold representative of his kingdom, of his authority. Now, it's important. The Bible doesn't actually say the statue was the image of a man, so this is somewhat speculative. But what is clear is it was a big statue in the middle of the desert that he set up for a very specific reason. What's the reason? It says in verse 2, the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of all the provinces. Let's get all the heavy hitters in here to look at this great gold statue and to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then to herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O people, nations of men of every language, that the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, I don't know what kind of messed up band. (laughs) That would sound terrible, right? Just everybody blow their instrument loudly at the same time. Babylonian culture, different from ours. And all kinds of music, when you hear that cacophony, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king has set up. That's the instructions, right? But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, all the peoples and nations and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. It's a power play, right? He's getting all the authorities and everybody around. He set up this big gold statue in the middle of the desert and says, When the horns blow, worship the statue or burn. Those are your choices. And that's the point. That's what this statue represents. Babylon, remember, is an empire of a broadly mixed people. It was one of the early uh, attempts at really creating a world empire as far as their understanding of the world and who was in it. Right? And so as they conquered different people, the whole program, when they came in and captured Israel and took Daniel and his buddies was because they were from a different culture. They were going to teach him Babylonian culture and send them back to rule. He's trying to knit together people of different languages, different faiths, different backgrounds, all under his rulership. 
And you can see that very clearly. He says, you know, multiple times in what we just read, all people of all languages, right? We're going to come together under one unifying force. And this wasn't such a big deal for most of those people because religious pluralism was the norm for people in the ancient world. And what we mean by that is they had many gods. They believed in many different religions. And so to add in one more thing was just, you know, polite. It was just, you know, it would be offensive to not just add this to the many things that you worshiped in your life. Plus, it was a big, impressive golden statue. I mean, come on. And the worship of the statue is to ensure their loyalty to the king. He's basically impressing his authority on the people in a very visible way because he wants to declare the strength of his might, the glory of his personhood, and the realm of his authority. And this was, pretty, this was actually pretty normal in the ancient world. Rome had a cult to the emperor, right? They had to make a special dispensation. There, was one pe- there were one people group in the Roman Empire that weren't down with that and actually wouldn't pay homage to Caesar and worship him like everybody else. And guess who it was? The Jews. They had to make a special dispensation that, you know, the Jews didn't have to worship. They just had to pay their taxes, right? And that's because of the Bible. That's because of the Old Testament, what it teaches, that there is one God and you shall worship only one God. God was very clever in the way he set that up, too, because he knew there were idolatry all around them, just like in in the culture of Babylon, right? So what does he say? He says, there's one God, and you shall worship him only. And you think, okay, but, you know, what does God look like? Maybe I could worship some of these other idols and just pretend like it's the God of the Bible. And God's like, nope, you shall make no graven images of me. So any graven image that you see is not me, and it's not who I want to be represented by. So anytime you bow down to any graven image, you are worshiping a God other than the God of Israel. He went out of his way because he, from his perspective, is the only God. He believes that he's the only God. And he says, I do not want you to worship false gods. There is one true God, and it is the God of Israel, according to the Bible, and we should only worship him. And that is very deeply ingrained in Jewish culture and Christian culture. So you can see the problem here for Daniel and his buddies is he's setting up an image and saying it must be worshipped or you will be killed. You must worship. You can worship as many gods as you want. Right? I'm sure Neb thought he was being very reasonable. Just add this or die. Is his perspective. And so we read in verse 8, for this reason, at the time, certain Chaldeans, now who are the Chaldeans? They're the wise men that Daniel saved in chapter 2, right? The, the, the wise men of Babylon. They hear this and they come and they brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said, Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn is to fall down and worship the golden image. We think that's great. And boy, is it impressive, O king. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Even though they had been saved by Daniel in chapter 2, what happened was Nebuchadnezzar had promoted Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the Chaldeans. And now we have a game of sour grapes. And they know that these men are still Jewish. They observe the Jewish customs. Daniel and his buddies have gone out of their way. They're not hiding their Judaism. They're not hiding their faith in the God of the Bible. They're just excelling and being a blessing to the people of Babylon. And so these Chaldeans come in and they see an opportunity. They know that these guys are not going to worship the statue because they're Jews. And they throw them right under the bus and say, Neb, you said you made a decree. Your word is law. We have to kill these guys. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar gets in a rage and in anger gives orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, and what I'm sure he thought was a very reasonable statement on his part, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, I'm going to give you one more chance. If you're ready, I got my crazy band over here. And at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, you are to fall down and worship the image I have made. Then very well, we'll forget all about what I've heard. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now they're in a spot. The question that we have to ask is, why not just worship the statue, right? I mean, being thrown into a furnace of burning fire sounds like a really bad idea, and that's not going to help your witness at all, right, if you're dead. I'm sure their wives and their kids were pointing this out to them, right? Like, look, you know, I mean, we're in a cross-cultural situation, Shadrach, right? I mean, we can bend a little bit here, can't we? I mean, we can worship the God of the Bible, but, you know... The ruler here, Nebuchadnezzar, is in authority. The temptation here would be to just do what he says. Is it worth your life? Can't you still worship the God of Israel? It's not as though God uh, would reject them, right? God is a loving God. He forgives our sins all the time. If they sin just a little bit here, can't everything just be copacetic? I mean, it's not like Nebuchadnezzar is going to bring this whole thing around all that often, and you're going to have to repeat this like every day. Just go with the flow. Why not just lie? Why not just do what you need to do? I mean, if you're a pragmatist, right, you've got to be thinking, you know, I can accomplish more for God in the long run by staying alive than I can by dying here for this cause in this moment. For that matter, why can't there be many gods? Everybody around us thinks there's many gods, if the whole world says there's many gods and we're like the only people that say there's one God, I mean, how do we know that we're right? Do we want to die over that point? And I think we can begin to see some real relevance to our issue today as well as we watch Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego go through this situation. What, where is it okay to be flexible and where do we have to stand strong? And are there things that we should stand strong on so much 
that maybe we would even be willing to risk and give our lives for those things. And what might those things be? Religious tolerance is a very interesting subject. It's a very interesting thing to watch as a flow through history, uh, the way that people have viewed this, the way it's acted in culture. You know, this question, is it unloving or disrespectful to refuse to accept all religions as being equally true? Is that somehow bigoted to say that they're not all the same, right? In fact, some are better than others. A lot of people say, whoa, 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 that's culture, right? And one of the things they do is they make the mistake of equating religion as culture. As if you're saying, you know, um, well, you know, the flavor of ice cream that I like is this. And you're like, oh, well, no one is allowed to like that flavor of ice cream, right? That's a subjective issue of opinion. And for a lot of people, that's what religion is. But is it that? Is it the same? Is it, a, is it a non-moral thing? Is it just, well, it's an expression of who you are and who your parents were and the culture that you were raised in? Or is it ever at some point a question of truth where you're asking yourself, how are things? What is truth? How do I decide what right is and how do I decide what wrong is? How do I determine what is evil or what is good? And is there truly a being that created us, that has a will, and that has spoken? Or is it all made up, and it really is all opinion? I mean, when you start to press down into this question, it starts permeating out into all these areas of our lives. And it's important, too, that we consider the difference between tolerance and acceptance. Tolerance, religious tolerance is saying we should respect, love, and seek to get along with others regardless of religion. You can believe what you want to believe, and that does not mean that we can't be friends. We can disagree on the fundamental issues of religion and faith, but we can love each other and value each other. That's tolerance. And when it comes to religious tolerance, the Bible says... Absolutely, yes. We should be able to love, and in fact, we're commanded to love those who believe differently than we do. Romans 12, 17, and 18. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can live in peace with everyone. And people say, oh, well, you know, tell that to the Crusades. <laughs> well, we should have, right? That's like the most unbiblical thing that's ever happened in human history, right? Where they thought we we're going to go, you know, kill the infidels. I mean, huh, uh, Lord Jesus, what must he have been thinking when all of that was going on? I mean, he was thinking they're illiterate. That's what's going on. And no one's read my Bible. Unbelievable. That happened. That has really nothing to do with the Christian faith. That has to do with land grabs in the Middle East. The Bible is very clear that we are to love all people. Colossians 4, 5 through 6, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response to everyone. 
Get along with everyone. Do your best to love and to be compassionate toward everyone. And then when the opportunity arises to explain your relationship with God, be ready to give an answer. That's the picture here. So tolerance is good. And being tolerant of others and defending religious freedoms of others is good. But is that the same as acceptance? Saying that other beliefs that contradict the Bible are just as true as the Bible. The Jews in Babylon, as we've seen, they regularly do whatever they can. They're super respectful. They stretch and they flex and they pray and they want to be a blessing to Nebuchadnezzar and they want to be a blessing to Babylon, but they will not bend on certain issues, issues that deny the teachings of the God of the Bible. Our culture says you're a bigot and you're intolerant if you don't believe all religions are equally true. That's the flavor of ice cream thing, right? Where they're saying, look, if you think that your religion is more true than another religion, then you're the same as a crusader. And that's what's problem. That's what's caused all the strife in the world and all the, all, almost all the wars. And that's the, the poison of religion is when you take it to such an extreme that you think that your religion is true. And so let's relegate faith to the area of opinion and personal preference. And let's forget about truth. And the Bible strongly disagrees with that. Because from the Bible's perspective, there is such a thing as truth. There is a God. He created us. He gave us a purpose. He gave us meaning. He is a loving God. He's a compassionate God. But he is a sovereign God. And when he speaks... He's taken the time over the the centuries and many thousands and thousands of years to guide us and to speak to us so that we would understand who he is because the truth matters. Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the same way God foresaw the the tension that the, the, the Jews of the Old Testament would live in, right? He blocked out idol worship so clearly, right? Because he said, there will be no graven images of me. And you shall worship no other gods. And I am the only God. So there was no way for them to wiggle out. They were either going to be an idolater and they were going to deny the truth of the God of the Bible or they were going to follow the God of the Bible. And in the New Testament, we see exactly the same thing. Jesus says, the only way to salvation is through me. And there's really no way around that. When you study it and look at it, you have to say, well, I either believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ, I believe in the New Testament. This isn't like my idea, and I'm not saying my ice cream is better than everybody else's ice cream. You're saying, I believe, and I have come to believe, that the God of the Bible is true, that he has spoken, and one of the things that he has said is that he is the way to salvation, the only way to salvation. And what are we to do with that? We live in the same tension on that. 
that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were living right before Nebuchadnezzar? Is it evil to believe that all religions are not equal? And what price are you personally willing to pay to make a stand on that point? We can look at it from this standpoint. We can look at some of the tenets, some of the more extreme tenets of certain religions, right? In the time of Joshua and Moses, right, there were the Canaanites and the people of the land, and they had a religion that taught that infant sacrifice was a way to worship God. And it was brutal. Literally, they would create a statue of their God with arms outstretched, stone statue, and you would build a fire under the arms so that the stone would glow red hot and they would throw infants into the arms of Baal, sacrificing their babies to their God. And archaeology has found mass graves of infant dead in worship to Baal. And the God of the Bible says, that is wicked. That is evil, and that should never be done. We say, well, let's not be too judgmental, right? That's their culture. That's the way they were raised, right? Who are we to say? You're forced into certain stances. You can't live as though all ideas, all faiths, and all religions are equally true. Some religions teach that if you kill your enemies and eat their flesh, that you will take their power. Is that good for them? Is that okay for that culture? Is that right? Some religions teach that husbands should beat their wives if they fall out of line. Is that okay? Is that religion equally true to all other religions? Some religions teach that killing those who don't believe what you believe is good and right. You see, no one actually lives as though all religions are equally true. We don't live that way because we can't live that way. We make those decisions in our hearts. But we love the idea of just saying we can just accept everybody and we don't have to fight about all these things. And in a sense, we're right. We don't have to fight about them. But we also cannot necessarily agree on these things. If you draw the line anywhere and you say that's wrong, Your religion teaches that if you fly your airplane into the Twin Towers, that you'll have virgins in the afterlife. Is that correct or is that incorrect? Is that true or is that false? Is that good or is that evil? And if you draw the line there and you say, that is messed up, you say, well, that's not representative of, you know, so much of of Islam. And I understand that. But their faith, they sincerely believe that sincerity is not the issue. Whether they were consistent with the teachings of of their religion is not the issue. The issue is, is they sincerely believe to the point of dying that that was God's will for their lives. Are we prepared to say that is wrong? Because if so, then you're saying there are religions that are wrong and there may be religions that are right. How do you decide between the two? Which ones are right and which ones are wrong? Yes, on the surface, it seems more loving to accept all religions as true. I was not raised in a, in a Christian home. I didn't become a Christian until my senior year of high school. And I am at my roots, as what they call as postmodern as they come. If you had talked to me when I was 17 years old, I would have been the one saying to you, I think it's so arrogant and so 
terrible to say that one religion is right over any other religion. And what kind of God could do this? And, you know, these Christians bother me, and I just think it's so intolerant. I was that guy, right? Because I was not challenged to think deeply about what, what, what my positions meant. I was just feeling, right? It doesn't feel good to tell people that they're wrong, and I don't know what truth is. I'm not even sure there is truth, so why fight about it? And it just feels good to say, let's just accept all things as being equally true. Oh, this, oh, that feels so good. There are many paths to God. Yes, right? Let's just all imagine that we worship the same God and that we're on different roads. But the problem is, is those paths contradict each other. And where they contradict, they can't both be true. They could both be false but they can't both be true. And we have to press ourselves a little more into understanding this and thinking about this because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are willing to die for what they believe. Are we willing to stand up for what we believe? The reality is, if you say that all religions are equally true, then you're saying, They're either that there is no truth or that the truth can't be known. There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no justice, and there's no meaning in anything. If you don't have truth, then you don't have meaning and you don't have purpose. And right and wrong are social constructions where we just come together and agree and they can change. And we see that, right? That's exactly part of what's happening in our culture is our cultural conceptions of right and wrong are on the move. They're shifting and have been since the beginning, right? But those changes are part of what's dividing our culture right now. Where people are saying, I want to change. I don't want to change. Well, what is our basis for changing? And why do you believe what you believe? What's the foundation behind it? Because this is my experience. Because this is the way I was raised. Because this is how I feel. But what about the truth? Does the truth matter? Does it exist? We are being polarized into so many different extremes. It's scary right now. It's scary to look out, you know, not into the world, but into our neighborhood, into our lives, and see how divided people are. And they're becoming more and more divided over more and more things. It's not like there's just one thing that's dividing us, right? There's so many things that are dividing us. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. Where do you fall, right? That's sort of a, a more recent one. It's not a more recent issue, but it's, it's really come to a head in the last year. Here on the old standby, women's rights, pro-choice, pro-life, we're divided over this, right? Now, you know, People say, oh, my God, you know, what's going on here? And the liberals and the conservatives and everybody's turning against one another and everybody's going crazy. As a Christian, how do we move? How do we operate? How do we represent God in the midst of a culture that is tearing itself apart? Because there's no basis for truth. It's just opinion. And all of these questions seem to be like, the favorite flavor of ice cream. And yet we're getting so impassioned about it. 
that it's lowering the value in many people. For many people, it's lowering the value of human life, which God says is sacred. How do we follow Daniel and his buddies and find a way to stay true to our God as we live in our culture? I've just put up some really divisive things. Those are the most divisive things I could think of. But I hope that you realize I haven't commented either way on, either, on any of them. And it's not because I think that we shouldn't have opinions about those things. It's because that the way that we should move as followers of Jesus Christ is to put the gospel first before all of those things. The answer is the love of God. John 13, 34 says, So now I am giving you a new commandment, Jesus says. Love one another as I have loved you. You should love one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That's what comes first. Are you on this side? Are you on that side? Are you of this persuasion or that persuasion? Where do you fall? I fall on the side of God's love. And God's love loves people equally on both sides of those issues. That's what we need to understand. So in the midst of injustice, intolerance, greed, murder, ignorance, all the things that we see happening right now and the hate that you and I see happening right now, what is the answer? What can you and I, what should you and I, what would God have you and I do? It's stand out by our love. It's to love people on both sides of this divide. Because what this is, you guys, what we're seeing happening right now in our culture, I don't know where it's going to go. It could all dissipate next week. Or it could get worse and worse and worse. I'm not a prophet. I don't know. But I know where it is right now is an amazing opportunity. Because if you bring love into the midst of all that hate and you bring light into the midst of all that darkness and you bring unity into the midst of all that division, you will stand out like a sore thumb. But to do that, you've got to put Jesus first. Jesus is why we're here. And that doesn't mean that we don't, it's wrong to have political opinions. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the gospel as believers, is more important than our political opinions. And our lives should reflect that. Well, old Neb wasn't going to take no for an answer from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This time he's going to make them pay. He's really out for murder. We get in there and he says, he says to them, they've, they've said they're not going to worship. He says, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Let's see, I'm going to go toe-to-toe with your God now. And we'll see who comes out on top. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer. Concerning this matter, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's no flex here. They're unapologetic. Can you imagine 
standing before Nebuchadnezzar, this guy who comes up with brilliant ways of inflicting pain and, and torture and murdering people, and he's drooling about this furnace he keeps talking about, and you're like, we don't owe you an answer. We serve God, and if God wants to save us, he will, and if he doesn't, he won't, but either way, you're wrong. <laughs> wow. How's Neb going to respond to that? Filled with wrath is the answer. <laughs> Says his facial expression was altered, right? I mean, you get the sense here that the, of the detail of the person who's writing this was watching, and they would just saw Neb like, what? You know, just absolute meltdown toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more. It's so funny. It'll just kill him faster. It's not going to be bad. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these were men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew the men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach. You couldn't get close enough to this fire. It was so hot without dying. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. And so Nebuchadnezzar's looking on, and he was astounded, it says, and stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, was it not three men who were bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly it was. Yep, there were three. He says, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. He's seeing this God, this God who he had just challenged and said, we'll see what God can deliver you from my hands. God's like, me, I can do it, and I will. And he did. And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, and he responded, he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come out here. This is great. Neb loves a good miracle. So then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out in the midst of the satraps, the prefects, the guys who had thrown them onto the bus, and they're like, oh, my God, these guys, they're unstoppable. And the governors and the king's high officials, you know, they're not rejoicing. They're like, oh, this is just going to be worse now. And they saw in regard to the men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of those men, nor was their hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged and They didn't even have the smell of fire come upon them. I love that detail, right? You wouldn't think of that. And he's like, they were so not touched by this fire. Have you ever been by a campfire and not been able to smell like a campfire, right? He's making the point, nothing touched them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. Look at how much he gets it, though. He's like, oh, my God, people who believe so much that they're willing to die for what they believe. 
That's impressive, but I'll still kill them. But then their God comes through and actually saves them. They believe to the point of death, and their belief is well-founded. You can kind of see the gears turning in Nebuchadnezzar's head of what he's seeing here. This is completely of a different order of magnitude to anything that he's seen before. Wow. Maybe Neb is finally getting it, right? Maybe he's finally getting broken and he's going to see the truth. Therefore, he says, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything against or offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. <laughs> he goes back to his old standard, the whole limb from limb and the rubbish heap thing. And you're just like, uh, you know, can you imagine being Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at this point? And you're like, wow, he's really impressed. And then, and then he makes this, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So what's the question? How do we wrap this up? It's the question we started with. Where should I be strong, and where should I be flexible? We're clearly supposed to be flexible in every way that we can. We're not supposed to start fights that don't matter. But then there are other issues, there are other places where we must stand for God. We should learn about other religions. We should seek truth. I mean, ultimately, what every Christian believer should be is a seeker of truth. And if there is evidence that supports the claims of the Bible, we want to know it. And if there's evidence against the claims of the Bible, we want to know it. Because if God is a God of truth, then he is not afraid of our questions. And we can seek answers without fear. We should serve and love all people. Love one another as God has loved us, Jesus said. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the things that we cannot throw away. Never try to force or compel others into our beliefs and preserve religious freedom. Because what it's all about at the end of the day for God is faith. And what is faith but a free will choice to believe? You can't force faith. You can force hypocrisy. You can force fakeness. But you can't change a man's heart through fear. We must be strong when it comes to violating God's ways. We must stand on what God has made clear in Scripture and make those things unmovable in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes if we believe in the God of the Bible. There is one God and there is only one way to Him according to Jesus Christ. And that is offensive but it is not intolerance. That is not saying that we can't value and love and be close and personal. And it does not say that we think people who believe differently than we are are of any different value than we are because we believe whether they know it or not, they were created by the God that we love. And that the only difference between me as a believer and a non-believer is God has broken my pride down to say that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. 
And that is not because I'm a good person. It's because I'm a bad one that I've come to that realization. We can disagree with people's beliefs and be loving and respectful. And we also need to understand that God himself is inclusive in his love for all people. It's not as though God's saying, I only love some and I don't love others. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for you anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants everyone to be saved. But to do that, we have to come to that place of repentance. We have to come to that place where we agree that we need a Savior. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. Anyone willing to call out to Jesus Christ and receive him into their hearts, that's who can be saved of any background, any race, any socioeconomic standing, any religion, any person willing is welcome and loved. Won't some people be turned away if we reject religious pluralism? Won't some people say, well, you know, I'm just, that's just not for me? Yes, that will happen. But also, what else will happen? If we say that there are many paths to God, what we say is that Jesus Christ is a liar because he clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, and if he's a liar, then he is not God, and he is not good. Furthermore, and let me tell you, this is my personal experience of this as well. I, when I became a Christian, I got to the point where it's like, I was the postmodern guy I was telling you about. You know, I was like, no, no, no. I got to the point where it's like, okay, I realize that I'm a sinner and that God loves me and that Jesus Christ died for my sins, right? But that doesn't mean that there's not many paths to God, right? That's just my path. And that was how I felt because I didn't think deeply about it. There wasn't a lot of deep thinking going on during this time of my life, Okay. And then someone came to me and they said, well, what about the fact that Jesus says he's the only way? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know how that works, but I don't have to know. And they're like, "Mm, that's not brilliant scholarship. (laughs) What about the Garden of Gethsemane? I was like, what? What do you mean? You look at the Garden of Gethsemane and it's the night before his arrest. And Jesus goes into the garden and he begs God, he weeps. And what does he ask God? He says, if there's any other way, will you take this cup from me? And God clearly says there is no other way because he says, not my will, but your will be done. And the base premise of who Jesus Christ is and what his death means, this is so important that we understand this, is that he took our sins upon himself so that we could be saved. And if there is any other way, any other name by which men could be saved, then Jesus didn't have to die. God killed his son because it made a a new path to him. And as his son begged for another way and for an alternative, God said, nah, I want this to be one of my many paths to me. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not who we're dealing with here. This was a desperate situation, and the only way that we could be reconciled to our creator was for there to be an acceptable substitute for our sin. And if that is not true, the whole thing collapses, and it's just a flavor of ice cream. 
when I got that speech, I was like, I need to think about things a little more deeply because I was still operating on that emotional level. Jesus had to die. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they show us that bravery and willingness to stand up for truth. You know, our culture is against truth. It's against standing up and, and, and saying, you know, one thing is right over another thing. But you know what else it hates? Fakery, mediocrity, and lies. And people are hungry to see some hope, hungry to have a view of something where somebody would be willing to take a stand and maybe even die for what they believe. Because that, why would you take that risk? Why would you stand up? And maybe we don't need to die. Maybe what we just need to do is say, I think our culture's wrong on this point and risk alienation. But to take a risk because your beliefs are sincere can win people's hearts. Nebuchadnezzar, while clearly he's still not willing to exclusively believe in God, his rage turned to respect because he saw the steadfastness and earnestness of their faith. I'll wrap it up there. I want to make this last point here, right here, next, uh, in two weeks. So I'm off next week. Got Adam Spitznagel coming in to do a teaching. Then we'll be in Daniel chapter 4. And guess what Daniel chapter 4 is? It's Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony. Nebuchadnezzar wrote a chapter of the Bible. It's called Daniel chapter 4. I want to read the first three verses for you. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, men of every language that live on all the earth, may peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and dominion is from generation to generation. And the rest of the book starts out, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was wandering about on my rooftop. And we find out how he truly comes to a real relationship with God in chapter 4. God, I really hope that no one here uh, is thinking that uh, any one political position has been um, espoused here. Uh, but uh, it's okay if anyone here is offended because uh, there are certain truths that are offensive. Uh, the fact that we are sinners is offensive. That we need a Savior is offensive. And that you're the only way to God and that we can't earn it is offensive. But those are all things that you say are true. And those are truths that have changed our lives for so many of us. And I just pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that if they are bothered by this, or if they're intrigued by it, that you will encourage them to talk out their questions and to get their issues resolved so that they can see you and know you like so many of us have. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.